From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The postseason is definitely in the air for the Gators, especially in Gainesville, where both tennis teams hosted NCAA action this past weekend and softball is currently home to the SEC tournament for the first time since 2005. On today's show, FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter sits in to discuss how things shook out for the Gators in the aftermath of the NFL draft, baseball's road surge, a twin killing for the tennis programs, another conference title for lacrosse, and the future of umpires in the PAT. Then, softball's resident ace Elizabeth Hightower stops by to share what it was like growing up in a small town without a single traffic light and how she developed a passion for the art of pitching. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable presented by Pet Paradise. Are you the kind of fan who loves your team as much as your pet? Bring your pets to play where animal lovers and sports fans collide. Pet Paradise, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. We are once again at a square table. Uh, it is just myself and FloridaGators.com senior writer Scott Carter on this uh, this modified shape of a round table. Chris is uh, he's in the trenches with softball, so uh, we will not get to talk to Chris today. But obviously next week. We'll talk about wherever that ends up for softball and what that means for the postseason. Uh, but for now, we have a lot of different things to hit on, Scott. And, and let's start by doing something that we did not do last week, which is talk about the NFL draft and where various Gators ended up. I guess I, I've led into our conversation about it in the buildup that it didn't have a lot of hype. And it had so little hype that I, I forgot that it even happened when it was over. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't a huge draft for the Gators. It wasn't expected to be, but... Uh, you know, the, the trend of the first rounders, that's that's still a cool thing to say. You had a first round pick all but one of the last, what is it, nine years now? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I think that is correct. And, uh, you know, the draft, that, that wasn't just with the Gators. It was kind of one of those drafts where there wasn't a lot of buzz for any of it. You know, when no. it, like we talked before the draft and you've seen still commentary after the draft more than a week later, uh, people are still talking about how you know, down of a draft and overall talent, the 2022 draft was. For Gators, they did have Kyrie Elam uh, go in the first round to keep that streak alive that you mentioned earlier. And, um, you know, the Gators have always produced players in the draft in the modern era, uh, Adam. And while it was a, a little bit of a down year, only what, uh, three guys got picked uh, with uh Elam and then Zach Carter going to the Bengals and Damian Pierce going to the Texans you know it was Kyrie Elam uh, he's certainly the star of the draft for the Gators and of course Buffalo hopes he becomes a star in their secondary that's why they took the took him with the 23rd overall pick and I think Kyrie projects well at the next level I, I still think you know he he's he's definitely got his best football ahead of him um you know, if, if his career plays out as expected. And then you got Zach Carter and Damian Pierce. I think both of those guys found good spots for, for them. I mean, Carter is joining a team that, you know, went to the Super Bowl last year looking for help up on the defensive line. 
I think he'll provide a good depth piece for them right away. And then Damian Pierce, I mean, he's got a chance to go into Houston and play right away. They're looking at him as possibly uh, their starter at halfback. So I think it's, a, you know, it was slim for the Gators in the draft, but for the three guys who got picked, I think they all found nice homes and have a chance to, you know, play at the next level. And you always have a few guys, Adam, sign uh, undrafted free agents. You know, you saw some of those. You saw Jeremiah Moon, Antonio Valentino, uh, Malik Davis to the Cowboys. So there's some of those guys who will look to make a roster that way or at least stay on the practice squad for, uh, you know, their rookie season and get some development and, and be part of an organization to where if there's an opportunity that comes up, they'll get a call and maybe uh, have a chance to see what they can do. So, um, but yeah, it's, it, you know, I, uh, I just think it fits really the way the season went, you know, when you go six and seven, a very non Florida like season, you're probably not going to have as many guys drafted uh, as usual. And that's kind of, that's kind of where the Gators are. And, Billy Napier is certainly hoping that trends back upward uh, in the next couple of years. Well, hopefully next year's draft has uh, more excitement, not just for the Gators, but uh, but overall. I mean, outside of that weird thing they did where Chris Angel escaped from a straitjacket before the first pick was announced, uh, it wasn't that entertaining of a show, especially for being in Las Vegas. Um, I could get on a whole side thing about Chris Angel, but I'm not going to. We're going to move on. We're going to move on to baseball uh, because, Scott, while we've talked a lot recently about the struggles that baseball has had and kind of the impasse they were at in terms of is this going to be even a tournament team or not, uh, they took care of business this past weekend and they swept Mississippi State, which it's not the Mississippi State of years past. But if you can get a road sweep in the SEC against anybody, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was a little bit gloom and doom when the Gators went out there after the news of Hunter Barco's season-ending surgery. And yet they go out there and win three in a row. Um, got some good pitching from guys who uh, you know are getting a chance, like Brandon Sproat and Brandon Nilly and uh, Nick Ficarada's pitching really well here lately. Nick Pogue had a nice game, a uh, nice start. So you just never know uh, with the baseball, Adam. Uh, you know, now they've uh, won five in a row after the sweep. They had beaten Kentucky before going out there and winning those three at Mississippi State. And then, of course, they won Tuesday night against Bethune-Cookman's at home. So, uh, you know, Kevin O'Sullivan, uh, last night after the game, he his uh, message was basically, okay, guys, uh, we're playing good ball. Don't take your foot off the, the pedal. You know, Missouri, on paper, we should go out there and win that series, but we're not good enough to be overlooking anybody. There, but, but it did kind of rejuvenate, I think, their prospects some, Adam, with what they did at Mississippi State. You know, they won with good pitching, but they also had the big rally in the ninth inning of, I think, game two where they scored six runs and getting some hits. And, uh, you know, just a lot of players are contributing up and down the lineup. I mean, the Ryapel, the catcher player of the week with what he did out there. Jack Caglione's a freshman starting to get a chance. He's starting to produce. And then, you know, Fabian and, Wyatt Langford and and some of the guys that we've seen do it all year, they're still they're still contributing. So it seems like some things are coming together. But again, I don't want to put too much into it. Let them go out to Missouri and see what happens. But uh, it can really elevate your stock in the postseason in NCAA tournament. So, um, but right now uh, they are, as they say, trending upward, Adam, and that's where they want to be at this time of year. 
Uh, you know, losing Hunter Barco is a big, big loss. So you really can't overemphasize that. But again, if guys like Nick Pogue and Nick Ficarada can do some of the things they've done uh, in the last few games, then that offsets that loss tremendously. So we will keep monitoring what baseball does. Can they keep the success up? We shall see. Um, let's talk about some NCAA tournament success. We mentioned last week tennis and the expectations that they would steamroll their way through the opening weekend. They did just that. Not only the men, but the women did too. Uh, and both are now primed for Sweet 16 appearances. So, uh, so far, so good in terms of both of their pursuits, especially on the men's side as one of the favorites. Yeah, this is that time of year, Adam, where, you know, it's it, the spotlights on the spring sports and certainly tennis. Uh, you know, you got the men's tennis team, the defending national champs. And we've talked about them on the show in previous weeks about, you know, they're they're going to enter this tournament as a favorite uh, to get back uh, to the national championship. They took care of business in the first and second round. And it's kind of the the formula they've used all year. I mean, it's just a complete lineup. You've got stars at the top of the lineup and Sam Rafis and Ben Shelton. And then Duarte Valet gives you some just experience in the middle of the lineup and the bottom of the lineup is strong. And it all starts with the head coach, Brian Shelton, just being such an even kill leader, uh, just has that team humming right now. And the you know, they'll, we'll see what they can do, if they can make it back there, if they can uh, win this week uh, at home. And the, it's the opposite for the women. They have to go on the road, but a different story as well. You know, Florida women had not been in uh, past the second round since 2017 when they won their last national title. Wow. So they, they won two matches in the f- first two rounds last weekend, and now they're heading up to North Carolina to face the number one overall seed. Uh, it's certainly going to be a tough challenge for them. But, you know, they, they're playing a Carolina team that lost to Duke. You know, Duke lost to Florida State, which the Gators just beat to advance. So, you know, you got some of those things going where tossing around different scenarios. So I don't think it's an impossible task. But I, I wrote about McK- uh, McCartney Kessler, the, the SEC Player of the Year this week, and uh, just what she's meant to the program and, and her st- – place on the team and uh you know she really uh is confident they they can do this and uh you know she'll have to play well a lot of her teammates will have to play well but she kind of sets the tone for that women's team so uh they're going up there to see if they can uh if they can get back on the national stage like the men men have been for the last couple of years hmm. hopefully next week we're talking about both of them uh, moving on to the next stage and getting to that final, the final boss level, if you will, the final stage to uh, compete for a championship. Now let's talk about a sport that, that doesn't get a ton of attention. And part of it, I think, is the the confusion about lacrosse not competing in the SEC. They bounced around to multiple conferences over the years because the SEC does not sponsor lacrosse. Only Vanderbilt uh, is another school in the conference that plays lacrosse. So they won another conference championship, their ninth in history, across three different conferences. Uh, and now the question is, can they get to that next level of the NCAA tournament? It's going to mean, can they beat some of the big ones? This year, they've played five top 10 opponents, a one in four record against those teams. So again, mission accomplished on the first part of this. Now, what can they do next is what we're waiting to see. Yeah, that's exactly the, the question with this team, Adam. Uh, it's a team that, you know, won a, again a conference title. And they played Mercer on Friday in the first round, with a, a game they should win. 
And then it's going to be the winner of the Stanford and Jacksonville match. And, of course, they're at home. So you, you think you look at it, and I, I can see Florida easily getting out of the weekend. But then that's where it gets tricky again. Like you said, it's a position they've been in in recent years. They're going to face most likely a Maryland team, which they played Maryland earlier this season and got beat. It's always been the Marylands, the North Carolinas, the Syracuses that have stopped Florida from really going back to the Final Four where they haven't been since 2012, and that was the only third year of the program's existence, Adam. So uh, it's, it's a really good program. Uh, they're always knocking at the door, but eventually you have to kind of kick that door down. And will 2022 be that year? Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but it, it starts off this weekend at home. And, um, you know, I, I, that's the goal every year to, to have uh, a couple of first rounds at home and then see where it takes you. Uh, so we'll be watching it together, man. So I think we would both freely admit lacrosse is not a sport we know a lot about. Uh, But we both at least claim to know a lot about baseball. We both claim to be passionate about baseball. Gators Chris is not, which is why this is a good discussion to have with him absent. And that is about the, the state of umpires. And I know we've talked in the past on PATs about, you know, the role of technology in sports, especially when it comes to officiating. But in baseball, it's almost something different, Scott. And I'm thinking about what's happened in the last week, specifically the Madison Bumgarner incident, where he got tossed in the first inning because the uh, umpire thought he was showing him up while he was checking his hands for, you know, for a sticky substance in the first inning. And in a very rare case, we actually saw the umpire apologize and say that he should not have tossed him out of the game, that he overreacted. And it just takes me to this place where not only am I thinking about this from a, why do we still let umpires make so many of the calls that they do, but how does it affect the fabric of the game, right? How does the, if if umpires were gone tomorrow, which they won't be, but let's say they stopped calling balls and strikes tomorrow, and we did it with robots, which is what I think we should do. And you didn't have the, you know, the Bobby Cox blowups and guys getting thrown out and just like the theatricality of all of it, because that plays a role here too. And I know as a, as a traditional guy, you'll probably advocate for that. But what what is the role for umpires as we move forward in a world where many parts of their job don't need to be human judgment calls. We can fundamentally change those calls and have them be objective instead of subjective. What role do umpires play, do you think, in the future of the sport? Well, I mean, it's something that's debated for the last few years now. And I I mean, I'm of the belief that I, I, I hope that their future is still on the field. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who would go the opposite direction. I think in the case that you brought up initially with Madison Baumgartner and Yump this week, I mean, that that was where the human part of it, the ego, the human ego got in the way. And I was glad to see the ump apologize, but. Which never happened. Umpires almost never apologize, even if they know they made a mistake. Yeah, you're right. And I think he, he knew he was wrong. And that, that was a bad look when you're, when your whole fraternity is basically being questioned whether or not they're needed. Mm-hmm. So when you make a call like that, it was really just a emotional egocentric decision to kick him out of the game at that point. Uh, it wasn't even something that related to a, a call on the field. Uh, so, 
that was a strike, certainly for umpires. But I think in a big picture, Adam, and I, I've said this before, I mean, what makes baseball special, and really what makes, to me, all sports special, I mean, it's the human element. It's the element of surprise. It's live. It's unscripted. Uh, you know, I remember when I was younger, Frank DeFord, I mean, I was reading something about, you know, him talking about sports writing, and, you know, he always said that, you know, he'd be at a dinner party in New York with all these literary figures. And they would always say, Frank, you know, how can you, why don't you dive into something more deeper than sports? And he's like, it bothered him at first, but then he realized that sports offers everything a rider wants. It has a beginning. It has a climax. It has a final. Mm -hmm. It has heroes and villains in each game. Well, guess what? That's what makes it entertaining for fans, too. It's not just from a writer's standpoint, but that's why we care about all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so if you strip away, if you start stripping away some of that humanity, like this umpire problem with Madison Bumgarner, it's been a big story this week. Guess what? If it was uh, robots calling it, we wouldn't even be talking about this right now. So you can say, well, is that good for the game or bad? Well, guess what? I think it's good for a game when you have umpires go out and throw bases and get kicked out of the game. <laughs> Baseball is a boring sport for the most part. That is it, true. Adds, it adds to the entertainment value. Whether And it also adds to the entertainment value when an ump does miss a call. Because although you now have instant replay and can correct the call, I still think that drama in the moment is important for the sport. So you start you know, going robotic and all this stuff. Eventually, a robot will manage the team. You'll still have to have players. But I mean, so again, I, I think... They're a fundamental part of the game. Uh, they've always been part of the game. Do they get it wrong sometimes? Yes. But guess what? It's been proven that they get it wrong most. I mean, they get it right most of the time. And are there some instances where they get it wrong and it, it, it kind of goes into the history book, like the 85 World Series, Don Dinkinger at first? It does. So if I'm a Cardinals fan, I'm probably like Joaquin Andahar after that game. I'd go into the clubhouse and destroy a toilet with a bat. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, we're talking about it as part of baseball history 30-some years later. That's a good thing. So, And maybe, maybe it's different for other sports, but I think in baseball, it's important to have that human judgment on the field. And, um, again, you start, you start giving less to humans and more to robots and that trend will bleed itself into other facets of the game. I, at that point, I'm stopped paying attention because I can go play computer baseball, as I've told you. <laughs> There's an, a game called Out of the Park Baseball. I can manage real media. <laughs> so, you know, I can do that already. <laughs> uh, well, and and the, the scenario you're describing, it sounds like the series of events that leads to Judgment Day and Terminator 2. So yeah. at that point, you know, I mean, we, I'm, I'm we, we lost all hope. I'm only here for the human experience, Adam. <laughs> if we if we start to turn into robots and I and instead of eating pizza for energy, they just plug me in. I'm ready to call it quits, man. I'm I'm <laughs> heading to the next planet. I'm out. I'm, I'm out. out. <laughs> yeah, I I do think there's there's got to be a, a happy a happy medium, right? A balance. And the thing with baseball, you you can't really have fouls called by robots, right? Fouls or judgment calls or, you know, a holding call in football is a judgment call. Baseball yeah. is one of the few sports that has these very strict objective calls 
kind of like tennis. Something's either in or it's out. And if they need to go to the computer, they do, and they can see exactly where the ball was. So I think we, I agree with you. Umpires do have a place in the game and they, they do need to have some authority, to, you know, create some chaos and make things interesting. But when, when the people watching the game on TV have a better understanding of what the strike zone is than the people who are in charge of calling the game, that's where I think we have an imbalance and where the credibility of the sport will continue to get hurt when you've got, there's multiple, there's multiple accounts on Twitter that are strictly devoted to scoring umpires after every game. And it's remarkable when it comes to balls and strikes, how bad they are. There was an at-bat last week for Marcelo Zuna where he got called out on three straight pitches. All three were balls, but all three were called strikes. Yeah. I mean, that I, at some point you do have a credibility that's, gap where you ha- you have to react to technology. Well, that's where the artistry of uh, pitching comes in. That's where uh, and umpires, you know, if you really talk to umpires and understand how they view the game, I mean, if Greg Maddox is on the mound and his control is impeccable in the outside corner, even though it might be off the black a little bit, he's going to get the call because what he is doing is art in terms of. <laughs> pitching he's picasso <laughs> yes and it's real i mean i'm not being funny here i i mean that's that's the game it goes back generations uh, he's not the only one now in today's world where everything can be framed up with technology and yeah i mean it, it's a different world like you know you say well you need refs in basketball to call fouls or football well you know eventually the players could wear sleeves with uh sensors in them and if you go over a threshold of touch that's a foul. If it's under that threshold, yeah. not. so I mean, you it's you possible. see, this could go in a lot of different ways. But again, this is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be dramatic. It's supposed to be interesting. I love the human element of it. I love that it's not perfect. It's not scripted. So when you start taking that away, it really, I just lose interest, man. I mean, who cares if it's a bunch of robotic? Who cares if the game is being managed by an algorithm and some laptop? It's not interesting to me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hopefully this conversation has been interesting to our listeners uh, because it is also unscripted and you never know where it's going to go. And uh, we encourage all of our listeners to stay plugged into not just Major League Baseball, uh, but all the Gator sports going on right now. We talked about everything is still going on. Baseball, softball, both tennises, lacrosse. There's a ton still going on. Uh, So make sure you stay plugged into FloridaGators.com to keep tabs on all of it. Uh, And come back and join us next week. We'll be talking more NCAA tournaments, softball venture into that realm as well, uh, and much more. So uh, we hope you join us then. For now, Scott, thank you so much. Yeah, like I will not be here actually next week. My robotic brother is going to be here. He's going (laughs) to handle my episode. And quite frankly, the fans may like that part more. So we'll see how it goes. Only one way to find out. That's right. That's right. Yeah, thanks, Adam. In a sport where power pitchers tend to dominate and clock speeds over 70 miles an hour, it takes a tremendous amount of skill to make it to the highest level, relying mostly on spin and control. For Elizabeth Hightower, the journey to Gainesville required a belief in herself and truly staying the course. With the SEC tournament serving as the backdrop, we spoke to the senior about her passion and her path. I'm from Monticello, Florida. It's a small little town just east of Tallahassee. Uh, it doesn't even have a red light, so it's pretty small. Not even a red light? Nope, not even a red light. <laughs> How many stop signs? A lot of stop signs. Like okay. my graduating class was 33 people. 
Wow. So yeah, so super small. Let's see, my mom is a dental hygienist in town and my dad is in the Florida Highway Patrol and he was also in the military for over 30 years. He's a Navy chief. Growing up in a small town like that, like everyone knows everybody. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of my friends got into softball at a young age. Um, that kind of what got me in, what got me into it. Um, but I played a lot of different sports growing up, soccer, and I did cheerleading and also did horses. So it became a time where I had to choose between doing cheerleading, horses, or softball. So I ultimately chose softball. And I was also into beauty pageants too when I was younger. <laughs> you did a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I had to pick. Um, I chose um, softball because at the time we, I played coach pitch and t-ball and I really liked it. I liked being in the dirt. I liked being outside. I had pink everything. I had a pink glove, pink helmet, pink bat. But I just really liked softball for some reason. So I stuck to it. Um, eventually, we got out of Jefferson County because um, the leagues weren't really good there. So we went to Tallahassee for me to play rec ball. And the first day of practice, the coach got all the players out in a line on the field and taught us all the wind up. And ever since that moment, like I begged my mom for pitching lessons. Like I knew mm-hmm. I wanted to be a pitcher. Uh, I would bug her so much. I'd, we'd be in the grocery store. And I would just do the wind-up pitch over and over. And she'd be like, stop, Elizabeth, stop. <laughs> um, so I begged her for lessons. And I got my first lesson from a Tallahassee Community College player. And then eventually I got with Heather Butler, which was known as Heather Compton from UCLA. Lots of hard work, lots of hours in her backyard. But yeah, that's how I discovered I wanted to be a pitcher. I really liked the thought of being in the circle in the middle of the field with everybody watching me. I really mm-hmm. liked that part of it. Yeah, it was it was a grind. I was not great when I was younger. I wasn't one of those players that just mowed everyone down when I was younger. I It was a struggle. There was a point in my pitching career when I was, you know, pitching about the same with my left and right arm. Wow. So I was just tired of being bad. I was tired of being so <laughs> bad. So I would be in my yard every day pitching and pitching like like I had something to prove almost like I wanted to be great. Has there ever been a switch pitcher? <laughs> not in softball. You hear about it in baseball, but definitely not in softball. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, I remember, I can think in my mind about baseball where there was someone I remember who had like a glove that, you know, it was like an ambidextrous glove so they could switch, switch arms to throw from a softball could have been the first one in softball. You could have been a, a pioneer. I know people usually, they talk about that with like good intentions, but I'm saying <laughs> I was so bad. Um, you mentioned your dad and, and his, uh, his military service. Now I'm going to talk more about that in a second, but just from, from a, a growing up standpoint, what role did the military play in your life as a result of your dad? Yeah. He had to like go overseas a few times. Um, reserves. He's in the reserves. Okay. Yeah. Um, he's been to Germany. He's been everywhere, Italy, but those are pretty much short trips. Like I think the longest one was three months at a time. And that's when I was 16. Uh, he went to Bahrain, but I would say that was the most like pivotal one. Like the one that I could remember. Um, it was right after I tore my ACL and then he went overseas, but it hadn't really like, it wasn't like a burden or anything, you know, like it wasn't like yeah. crazy long time. It was, I think three months, four months, somewhere in there. And, you know, everyone's doing this bit on softball dads and girl dads this mm-hmm. year that, you know, sometimes softball moms don't get a lot of credit for what they put into. And, you know, my dad, he's, he's the guy I always go to for softball things, but my mom is the person I always go to for emotional support. Um, my family has been great throughout this whole thing. They've sacrificed a lot 
you know, we've turned softball into family vacations <laughs> when we play in Orlando, you know, we might check out Disney world or yeah. we go to California. We'll check out the beach, stuff like that. So I think that girl dads are cool, but also like softball moms need to be recognized too. Yeah. Did, even if you wasn't gone for long stretches, or even if you weren't, you know, an army brat that had to pick up and move all the time, how did it affect your, your worldview? Like knowing what he did and, you know, the work he was doing and what it meant, did that resonate with you when you were younger or did you only appreciate that more when you got older? He kept a strong facade for us. Like he didn't really tell us what was going on or what he was like going for. Um, and I think that was a good thing. Cause I think, you know, we would have been probably scared, yeah. but at the time he didn't really tell us kids much, but you know, as I got older, maybe within the last few years, he like told us what, you know, he was actually going for and actually the dangers around it. And I'm like, wow, you know, I'm kind of glad I didn't know at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. Well, my freshman year, um, in my end of fall meeting, coach Walton, I struggled in the fall here and coach Walton was trying to explain how there's like bigger things in life than softball. And he explained how, um, so I committed when I was 15 in 2016 and then he got deployed in 2016 and he asked coach Walton that if anything happened to him, would he take care of me? And I didn't know that that conversation, um, had happened and it just kind of gave me a new, like a uh, worldview on things. Mm-hmm. Like there are bigger things in softball, but at the same time, like the trust that my dad had in coach Walton to be there for me. That was pretty cool. What built that bond? I mean, during recruiting, what was it that made that connection strong enough to where, you know, your, your dad would say that to coach Walton? Um, I just think it's the relationships that he builds with his players. Like during recruiting, our big thing was like, you know, what's my dream car. That's something that he always brought up that we just kind of laughed about, but you just like build that, that bond with, you know, the player and the family. And you, you kind of feel like you're already there pretty much. Um, it's pretty cool. So, I mean, you've established, obviously, it was a strong bond that you had. Um, did you really consider going anywhere else or was it always going to be Florida for you from the moment you decided you wanted to play in college? Growing up from um, a little town east of Tallahassee, you know, I was always involved, like, at FSU. I always like went to their games growing up because they were super close. You know, I thought, uh, you know, when I was a kid, like, man, you know, I want to play for FSU. And, you know, as I got older, just kind of realized a few things about myself and my personality. Um, took my visit here at Florida and pretty much immediately knew that it was the place for me. My final two choices, uh, FSU was not one of them, hmm. but um, ultimately I, I liked Florida the best, had everything I could ask for. Like, you hear people talk about stepping on campus and getting that feeling and it's, it's real. How did your family and friends who I imagine were largely FSU supporters, how did they feel when you decided to go to Florida? Are they, are they okay with it now? Or is it still a struggle? It's, it's still a struggle. You know, my, my whole high school, pretty much FSU fans, you get the occasional Gator fans. Um, my dad, Growing up was an FSU fan and graduated from FSU. My mom went to a community college here in Gainesville and then graduated from FSU. Hmm. So that ran pretty deep. But my mom's family, they're all Gator fans. So they were super excited. My friends, they were excited for me because um, it was 2016, right after Florida's um, second World Series title. So that was pretty cool. Everyone was super excited for me. But, you know, I still, you know, get, I still hear go Knowles. 
Yeah. And the funny part is my mom going to a community college here in Gainesville, she's like, if I have a daughter, she's, she's never going to school in Gainesville. It's, it's a party school. It's a party <laughs> city. She's never going. And I just think it's funny that I ended up here now. That is funny. They came, it really came full circle then. It did. <laughs> so when you got on campus, I mean, Florida, such a, a long history and tradition of great pitchers. Who was it that took you under their wing and really like showed you the ropes when you got into school? Kelly Barnhill. She, we were um, road roommates on the hmm. road for travel games. So she is my roommate. Um, I came in and Coach Walton made us accountability partners. So like even during the fall, we lifted together. We ran next to each other at conditioning. She was my person here my freshman year. So when I was like looked up to, went for for advice, um, one of my best friends here my freshman year. And we still um, talk today. Like I just saw her a few weekends ago. We went out to dinner. It's pretty cool. When you think about your career and, and the time that you've had, how do you feel like you've grown the most, both on and off the field, from the time that, that Kelly took you under her wing as a freshman? Well, when you think of Florida and their traditional pitchers, you think of, you know, power pitchers that, you know, some of them, you know, from my time, it was like Lauren Hager and Kelly Barnhill. And it's like, man, I got to I gotta pitch like them. And I have to <laughs> throw hard. I have to throw 70. I have to get, you know, lots of strikeouts. Um but I realized that that didn't really work for me, that I was never going to throw 70. So I really had to look myself in the mirror. And I think my biggest growth pitching wise came, um, you know, over the COVID break that we had coach Bosch and coach Walton really drilled into me that we had to fix my illegal, my illegal pitching. So I worked on that. And then I also really honed into my um, ability to spin pitches and locate. And I realized that, you know, if I can keep the batters off balance and I locate my pitches, that I, you know, I don't have to throw hard that I can get out, you know, I'll get little foul pop-ups and weak spinny ground balls. And that's how I'll get people out. So it was kind of cool to just kind of discover my true identity here. I didn't try too hard to be someone else and someone that I'm not. It's cool to be able to trust myself to throw, you know, in the fifties and get out, mm -hmm. which is something that I like to, you know, teach little girls. Like, you know, you don't have to feel like you have to throw hard to be good that you can work on A, B, and C and be good. Senior day was a few weeks ago, and you are a senior, but this is not the end for you. Can you talk about what went into your decision to take that extra COVID year and come back in 2023? Um, the moment that I found out that I would be granted an extra year, it was no question. Like I knew I wanted to do it. I graduated in December, and I came into Florida as a biology major. Um, I switched to anthropology, and it would be a hard route to get into like PhD school for anthropology here. So I think I'm going, I'm going to go the sports management certificate route and I'm going to do that. So basically like it's, I hate to say this, but it's kind of like prioritizing softball, but I only have one more <laughs> year. You know, I, I have a lifetime of school and yeah. only one more year of softball left. So as soon as I knew that, that, that I was going to be granted an extra year, I was, I knew I was going to take it. It was going to be no question. Hmm. Well, given all of the, the schooling that you've had in lots of different areas, I wonder, have you decided what you want to do after softball or is that still a, a work in progress? Done a few things here with anthropology that I, I absolutely love just working on like a few things now. I can't really like say too much about it because it's not published yet, but I'm working with a professor and a, a graduate student, uh, a PhD student, and we're like working on a site together. So hmm. that's been really cool. Like I get to do hands-on stuff, like get experience. I can put it on my resume. So doing that kind of stuff, 
mainly like we're i know this sounds weird but like working with bones and like gathering data from that that's what i was gonna say is anthropology is something that i feel like a lot of people hear but they don't really know what it is they just know it's science um yeah what is, what is for for the layman uh i'm including myself here what is anthropology so anthropology like as broad as it gets is like the study of humans altogether but i'm more of the biological anthropology side so i, I look at what goes into the makeup of bones and the morphology and the um and everything that goes into that so i'm doing that part of it uh, there's cultural there's all kinds of fields of anthropology but i'm more focused on the biological part what do you like to do away from the field and away from school it sounds like that does take up a, a good chunk of your time but when you do have some freedom what do you like to do I kind of found this thing that I like to do. I call it find a vacation in every day. And whether it be like, you know, a walk on campus or I sit on my porch um, with my cat and like look at the lake around my apartment complex. I just try to find little pieces of my day that I consider a vacation. So it's kind of just seeking that out, which has been kind of cool, like a little like game with myself. Um, other than that, I like hanging out with friends at the pool. Um, I hang out with my cat a lot. Other than that, softball's taking up so much of my time. But <laughs> <laughs> I read that, that you also do a lot of work with a nonprofit group, Flags for Our Fallen. Um, yeah, me and my dad created that. Oh, you you created yeah. it? Yeah. Oh wow. Hey, tell me, yeah, tell me about that. Yeah, it's hard to do when I'm away at college, but when I'm so we created this organization together. So it's a long pro it's a long um process. So basically we collect flags that need to be retired. So there's, you got, you have to follow the flag code to mm -hmm. respectfully retire a flag. So we found a way where we can take those retired flags and we can pair them up with a deceased veteran who for some reason might not have been like, you know, granted a flag at their burial. Like there's um, specific things you have to go through to be able to get that flag. So we kind of pair them up together. So that way, the families and that veteran can be honored with the flag. And also we are retiring the flag in a respectful way. How did you come up with the idea for that? With my dad being in the military, you know, he um, folded the flags at funerals. That's, mm -hmm. that was his job to do. So I rode along with him to a lot of funerals when I was younger and, you know, I'd watch him do the process and I always had so many questions and it, it just came up one day, like when I was, think little just asking all these kinds of questions and we kind of sparked the idea together that you know since there's this way that you have to retire the flag and you know it's just not fair that some veterans don't get a flag that we wanted to find a way to help the families receive that honor how do you find families to honor like who does the how has the organization gotten bigger is it still just you two or have you, have you had to grow it it's still just us two it's still growing we're trying to get it like finalize where we can actually do it but we have collected flags you know how you can interpret laws different ways there's different interpretations of you know the flag codes and everything like that so we're still trying to get the specifics worked out for it but we have collected flags in our local community together so right now the scale that we're working on is collecting flags and we're still trying to get everything worked out with pairing that's very cool that's very cool um a couple of final things for you bringing it back to the field um, you know, this has been kind of a, a different year for the program, maybe more, you know, more losses than people are used to seeing and some scores that sort of surprise you in what ways have the challenges that this team has gone through 
sort of help build, you know, more character and make you more battle ready, I would assume, for the postseason? For me, if you look back at the scores um, over the SEC series, I have not done well on Fridays. I give up a few more runs on Fridays and then Sundays I bounce back and I pitch better and we win more games on Sundays. So I think for me personally, it's just because, you know, last year I I pretty much rolled through and Mm -hmm. without much struggle and adversity. Um, But this year, you know, I've hit quite a bump, a few bumps and had to deal with that adversity. And I had to deal with, you know, like, man, this team beat me on Friday and now I have to go pitch again against them on Sunday. Like, you know, people, they could get, you know, intimidated by that. But I Mm -hmm. think me going through that the whole season, it's just making me even better. You know, you have that short memory. You really focus on, okay, how can I be better? What can I do to be better? Like, how can I put my team in a better position to win? You know, because Sundays, you know, the rubber matches, big games. I think that's made me better and more able to handle the adversity. You know, I always like to talk about my confidence that um, my confidence, it could be confused with what's the word arrogance, I guess. Like I feel like in my, yeah, yeah. In my mind, like, I feel like I'm so confident that there's just no way that I'm going to lose that I have prepared the right way. I know everything I need to do to win. And there's just no like option in my mind to lose. Um, so that's, I think that's really helped with my bounce back. And as far as the season, you know, we go through this thing and, you know, it's easy to point the finger, like that's the reason we lost that mm-hmm. and that, but really we've bonded together as a team that we know that when we need to win, it's going to be a team effort. Like pitchers are going to do their jobs. Offense is going to do their job. Defense is going to do their job. I think we've really learned how to play together as a whole um, mm-hmm. throughout this whole thing. And, you know, when it comes postseason time, coach Walton always says that everyone's oh no. So I don't think we'll be holding on to those losses come postseason. That it's just fresh new softball. We're all seasoned. We're all ready to go. Well, and as far as the postseason goes, you have a, an interesting opportunity to potentially be at home all the way through to the World Series because you're hosting the SEC tournament for the first time. And I think it's 17 years. Uh, and then obviously we'll be in position to host a regional and, and hopefully a super regional. What type of advantage do you think it'll be for the team to be able to be at home throughout the entire postseason and, you know, have the, the comforts that come with that? Um, you know, I think it's anytime you get to play a game and then go home and sleep in your own bed, that, that's an advantage in itself. But just, you know how the field, like every quirk of the field, like you know how it plays. Obviously, you have the home crowd. Um, Gator Nation's been great this year. They've really showed up for us, which is awesome. You know, you, you can really just hear them throughout the games and, you know, I think COVID took that aspect away when we had limited fans. So it's really cool to hear them back and be loud and cheer for us. And just, you know, being able to have our locker room and all of our equipment here, um, everything being familiar, you know, all the stuff that goes into that. But I, I like playing at home, so I want to <laughs> yeah. be home that the whole way. Yeah. Well, hopefully you are at home all the way until you have to leave for Oklahoma City. Um, But we wish you a lot of luck on the road to try and get there. And thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.